You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. So uh, normally I'm based between uh, New York City and Tel Aviv, so you know I divide my time between the two. Uh, as it so happened, from the start of the pandemic, I was actually already in Tel Aviv. So uh, then everything that I had that I was going to have in New York got canceled, you know, as far as um, gigs and whatnot. So it didn't make sense for me to uh, travel back there, especially since New York was one of the and possibly the worst place to be in the world uh, in that moment as far as COVID uh, goes. And so I uh, have been uh, here quarantined in uh, Tel Aviv uh, with my family. We've been living as uh, a COVID unit or a COVID bubble. And uh, that's been one of the silver linings of this period. I mean, it's been rough, but that's definitely been a silver lining. And so I've been here in Tel Aviv most of the time, with the exception of about a month, in which I did need to go back for the one gig I had this past year that wasn't canceled. And that was actually a, a film production that was done, a filmed opera production with all of the COVID uh, safety precautions in place. And it was with uh, a company called Teatro Grattacielo, so uh, they do what are called a verismo opera. So that's like late 19th century, uh, early 20th century Italian opera, uh, you know, operas that are not as well known. So uh, they, um, so one of the things that's really appealing to opera audiences is that through that company, they get to hear uh, rarities that they wouldn't normally get to hear in a normal opera going experience. So uh, these are precisely the kinds of operas that Teatro Grattacielo put on. So this one gig that I had that did not get canceled and that they were, were able to do safely, I mean, with the safety precautions, was a production of this, uh, again, rarely done opera called uh, Giordano's uh, Fedora. I mean, Giordano was the composer. And uh, it was really beautiful. And having one gig, one, was a godsend in this past year. So I'm really well, grateful that that's right, for that, that. That, that, one, that one special one, I know in talking to a lot of guests, uh, you know, remembering that show, whether they were participants in the show or outside of it. Um, we're talking with Kinneret uh, Ely, uh, uh, soprano, uh, opera singer. Um, uh, it's a great pleasure to, to have you on the show. And again, from from Tel Aviv and your work uh, based in Tel Aviv and, and New York City. It's a great privilege to have you on here, uh, Kinneret. And um, thanks for joining Something Rather Than Nothing. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on. I uh, I, I want to know. I want to know. You're 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 an artist. You're a trained artist. You work hard every day at doing it. Were you an artist when you were born? Well, I think the interesting th thing there is that I think every person has a, a creative bent when they're born. You know, there's actually there was actually a Pablo Picasso uh, quote that came to mind when thinking about this, um, uh, which was, and uh, I'll have to paraphrase, I'm not kind of putting words in Picasso's uh, That's mouth, what we do here, paraphrase. But uh, everybody, <laughs> I will paraphrase away. So anyway, there's um, uh, something that Pablo Picasso once said, and I apologize for the Tel Aviv traffic in the background. Um, in any case, he said something to the effect of, all children are born artists. The question is uh, making sure to remain an artist when you get older. So I really think that everybody has some kind of creative bent and a need to express themselves creatively, 
Now, whether, you know, people decide to take that and uh, build a career around that or not, or, you know, whether that's something they want to do is a whole other question or whether it's something they're passionate about. But I think that um, uh, everybody has a creative side to them. And uh, that's also why the arts are so uh, relevant to the society, because even if somebody isn't necessarily a painter or they don't necessarily relate to opera specifically or um, theater specifically, ballet specifically or what have you, people do have a need uh, to create in some sort of capacity and to experience creativity from others. So um, uh, so I really think that uh, Picasso was on to something when he said that. Yeah, I've uh, I've had many interviews on the show, and I got to say, this is one of like the formative questions, and it's, it fascinates me because I do really agree and, and move along towards the line of whatever art abilities or art ideas or ways of expression. Um, I think there's a universal aspect to it, and I think that there's something there's something about like an adult unlearning too for folks who have been out of it. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, I started um, I started art you know formally in my life i'm 48 at 45 right so like i like to imagine and thinking back that there were things there and it's just the environment that you move through whether that's um accentuated um you gave the conceptual answer there which is obviously what i want but were you were you singing when you were a little baby i mean were you singing when you're a little baby were you always singing I have such a funny um, uh, story to tell about that. Okay, so first of all, one of the things that a lot of opera singers, uh, we opera singers do frequently is we'll do what are called opera outreach performances. So we'll go to places like schools, you know, and uh, hospitals and whatnot and sing, you know, uh, with the purpose of bringing our uh, art to people who wouldn't be able uh, to experience opera in a theater in the uh, quote unquote conventional format. So in any case, the reason I say all of this is because I actually did an outreach performance at my old elementary school about a couple of years ago. So I see my old second grade teacher there. She was still teaching there. And uh, she says to me, I remember you back when you were seven years old. You were a fireball who would lead your classmates in singing songs all together. And the funny thing is I have no recollection of that. But I will say that given that I ended up growing up to become a professional opera singer, clearly nothing has changed <laughs> since since I was seven years old based so, on uh, her description of me then. So I, from that, I'll, I think that, yeah, I did have an artistic bent back then, even if I don't didn't have no recollection of that. It was such a natural, well, it's yeah. one of those things. Sometimes there's something that's like a natural outcropping of behavior. You don't remember it because it's so natural. And <laughs> um, so I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to just pose the, the, the next question just with a, just a tiny bit of background. Um, you know, it has to do mm-hmm. about like the impact of, of, of art. And if uh, so, you know, um, and I want to be just specific about, you know, getting, you as as an opera soprano singer on here and as a point of fascination for me and also for the variety uh, of the show. Um, You know, I'm trying to learn about opera. I'm trying to study and listen to it. And there's there's so many components to it. It's a little bit intimidating. Oh, yes. (laughs) Multiple languages. The regular 21st century viewer says, uh, how who's bad who's good and is trying to figure all that out but um one of one of the things that seems to be a very lofty very incredible uh art form 
And that brings my question about art. One of the things that really impacts me as a viewer of art is when things seem to be sublime, uh, seem to be bigger than us. Is, mm. is, is the presence of sublimity, uh, say in op opera or, or that experience, are there certain forms of art that are sublime? Um uh, yeah, well, you know, I really think that every art form uh, has the potential to be uh, sublime or, you know, there's the potential to create a sublime uh, work within that art form, whether in opera or in ballet or, you know, visual art like uh, painting. And uh, at least for me, first of all, art is very subjective, of course. Um, uh, for me, something that's really sublime is when you're able to have a really honest and direct expression of something, of some kind of emotion, especially. And uh, also when it's able, it's honest and yet it's also made beautiful somehow. Because a lot of these great works of art deal oftentimes with topics that are ugly or that are difficult to talk about, especially opera, in which uh, at least 90% of the time uh, they have tragic endings. <laughs> so they're able to take topics that are really difficult and make them really beautiful. And, you know, they're able to take a really honest and vulnerable and direct topics and also really condense them into, what, three-hour operas? A lot of these operas are um, about topics that we spend our entire lives thinking about. Love, uh, right. anger, uh, hatred, jealousy. I will also say... Um, uh, um, uh, you know, lightheartedness in the case of uh, comedies and opera, you know, but a lot of these things that we spend our entire lives thinking about and they're being condensed into three hours or let's say even five hours, which for an opera would be considered on the longer side. But as far as a topic that we uh, spend a lot of time thinking about all throughout our lives, that's a very short time, actually. And then it's given this really beautiful expression through uh, the power and the vulnerability of the human voice and also by the orchestra and, you know, then a whole bunch of these powerful, uh, vulnerable voices coming together as a chorus. So that is uh, really the sort of thing that can make an art form sublime, an opera sublime uh, specifically. So honest, uh, honesty and directness combined with beauty for me is what's the, uh, what the recipe is for something that's thank really incredible. Thank, th thank, thank you for that description. I really appreciate your indulgence on, on that answer because part of it is exploratory for me because I experienced the sublime as a, a viewer of art uh, mostly, mostly with painting. So, which of course is mm. a particular experience, right? Of like, how does a painting, ex how, how does a regular size painting that doesn't overwhelm you with like, the sheer scope of it, you know, the experience of the sublime, which is a very unique yeah. experience compared to the more visceral, emotive uh, work that you do. I find it fascinating that both can produce the sublime, even though their methods couldn't be more different. Yeah, oh, the methods couldn't be more different. Absolutely couldn't be more different. And I do remember some of my own, uh, you know, visual art um, uh, viewing experiences that uh, did uh, really hit me so powerfully when uh, I saw them. And uh, one that comes to mind immediately uh, as we're speaking now is uh, when I first saw, and I have to admit, I'm not totally solid about the pronunciation of the painting, which is embarrassing because it's a famous one, but Pablo Picasso's uh, Guernica, I believe mm. that's the pronunciation of it. Guer yeah, Guernica. but it was his. Yeah, Guernica. Oh, Guernica, excuse me. In, in yeah. the scope of it, the Spanish Civil War, right? 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's it was just devastating. Uh, I mean, in the best way, seeing this um, uh, painting by him was absolutely devastating because uh, you really get a sense of how uh, contorted and uh, twisted all of the figures are in the painting. Yeah. And through that, you really get a feeling of the devastation of uh, the Spanish Civil War. And I mean, my God, the ability for uh, a canvas um, uh, to be able to do that is and to do it in really a second, because uh, how long does it take to look at um, uh, a painting right. and uh, get it's that the experience? Whole experience? You can study it for a while and that you'd be studying it over time, but that immediate impact of seeing it would be in that second. And actually to that point, there was actually a really wonderful piece of advice as far as you know how this applies to uh, opera yeah. that one of my coaches, um, uh, Jorge Parodi uh, gave. So I'm giving Jorge a shout out, hi. So he said once, um, uh, you know, when he was asked uh, once, uh, oh, you know, what would uh, what advice would you give to somebody attending the opera for the first time? Do we have to prepare anything, do any reading and whatnot? And he said, no, don't do any preparation before you go to the opera, because you have one time in your life in which you can watch it without knowing what's going to happen next. And, you know, being at the edge of your seat, uh, following the story, there's only one time in your life in which you'll get to have that experience and then you'll never get to have it again. You can watch an opera over and over and get to enjoy uh, multiple layers in uh, the story and in the composition of the music. But that kind of immediate first impression of it is something that you'll only get to experience once. So to really take advantage of that. Not the advice I expected, right? I I, I hear I hear that advice though. It's uh, it um, kind of being thrown into the world and make your way around for once, right? Within it, yeah, exactly. And also not to go into and I I fully fully agree with this. And there are a lot of the uh, sorry, I'll just let that. Uh, uh, cargo. So in any way, um, uh, there are some, there are a lot of the operas that I would love to have that kind of first experience watching it again. And as much as I love being able to see, uh, see them for, you know, let's say the 30th time or the 40th time or what have you, and, uh, and getting to enjoy even more layers in it. I do also really wish I could have that experience again of watching it for the very first time and yeah. experiencing it as a brand new thing. So I would really embrace that. And I, I, there's another thing I really love about that advice that um, uh, Jorge gave, uh, which is that it really um, uh, kind of throws out the idea that you have to have done, you know, read a dissertation before you even set foot into an opera house. Um, uh, and uh, I, I totally don't think that's that's true. There are certainly very uh, academic components to uh, what makes up an opera, but at the end of the day, it's a very visceral art form, and uh, its uh, powers in the um, in the primal expression of that human voice, unamplified human voice, kind of hitting you inside a theater. You know, experiencing that uh, human voice inside a theater. Yeah, um, just uh, funda fundamental, powerful. Uh, thank you for your thoughts on that. Uh, my, uh, we, and don't worry about the traffic in Tel Aviv. My uh, cat, okay. uh, who you seen is seen in the background. For the listeners, we're we're recording this interview, but we have able to see each other from Tel Aviv and from Oregon. My cat has bit me twice since this interview began. Oh, no. so, um, oh. I think the Tel Aviv horns, it's very friendly. She loves me. 
I think the Tel Aviv horns are much less of a problem than her uh, behavior at present. And she's yelling out to you singing. So, um, ah, I love it. <laughs> um, we'll sing a duet. The cat duet by Rossini. I, <laughs> no, I'm just start, kidding. <laughs> um, so, um, Kinneret, uh, just uh, I, I have a I have a, another question um, that was based on. Uh, so, in order to prep for this interview and my general interest in opera, I've listened to some lectures and kind of here's a piece and learn about this history. Just kind of heavy, you know, intro uh, piece. And then the instructor on that, uh, Robert Greenberg. Um, done a lot of mm-hmm. lectures on great courses as a composes stuff on his own really smart guy I wanted to get your reaction to this quote because I was trying to understand fun- fundamentally maybe what what opera is you know for for the mm-hmm. experience and its relation to emotions he said opera is posited on the simple idea that music has the power to distill crystallize and intensify the meaning of words. And I'm just going to read that again for the listeners. Opera is posited on the simple idea that music has the power to distill, crystallize, and intensify the meaning of words. Is he right? Uh, Well, uh, that's another thing that's very subjective, and uh, I would both agree and disagree with that quote. I agree in the sense that um, uh, things like chord progressions or whatever musical markings are written uh, with a certain word can certainly give it a lot more dramatic of a power. And as a matter of fact, earlier this week, I had a rehearsal uh, for this opera I'm getting ready for this July, Mozart's Idomeneo. More on that in just a moment. But in any case, uh, the rehearsal was really all about those details and really emphasizing uh, uh, things like taking advantage of a certain chord progression that there is under a word to really give it a lot more dramatic weight. Um, uh, So in that sense, I fully agree um, with, um, uh, you know, Greenberg's quote. I disagree in the sense that, um, again, for me, the fundamental power of opera is, uh, is in experiencing the unamplified human voice in uh, a theater. And uh, for me, that's the reason that somebody can attend a performance of, let's say, you know, Verdi's uh, La Traviata or uh, Puccini's uh, La Boheme, just as a couple examples of some of the, I guess, cornerstone operas. And uh, so somebody with, can uh, go into the theater and listen to those works and uh, be absolutely uh, blown away by them without even knowing a single word of Italian and experiencing that impact of, uh, of the human voice is why. And then, of course, uh, the opera going experience becomes even richer in the sense of kind of like experiencing layers in an onion. You know, in that uh, sense, it becomes even richer uh, the more you know about it. But that impact is not something that necessarily hangs on whether you understand every single word or not. Yeah. And, and, and what I was interested in most, and, and thank you for your thoughts on that too, because I'm going to continue thinking about it. I was interested primarily, again, like studied opera a bit on my own experienced some, watched some newer to it of emotion. Like for me, like going into it, I was like really, I'm really intellectually connected to, the feeling in, in the story that's, that's conveyed and connecting to voice, you say the unamplified voice telling that story. Yes. Yes. A thousand percent. Yes. Okay. So here's the thing. Whenever I have a a guest who performs, I want the the listeners to hear um, like your, your performance. And I have a, a recording 
that, you know, I was going to play and we can come back to and talk about it. But I was wondering if you can do a little bit of a setup. It's a song to the moon. Um, Uh, Yes. Could you give a little bit of just to help us place us here before we enter that song? Absolutely. So um, uh, this uh, this is an opera aria from uh, an opera called uh, Rusalka, which is by Dvorak. So this uh, opera is in Czech. And it's basically the way I would describe it is as the Czech version of the Little Mermaid story, except this being an opera, it doesn't end well. Spoiler alert. Sorry. But anyway, this is uh, the aria that uh, Rusalka, the title character, sings in Act One. This is when she's uh, singing to the moon, as uh, the title of the aria suggests. And she's uh, asking the moon to uh, tell the prince. And uh, this character is simply named the prince. This is very archetypal. And uh, uh, she's asking the moon to tell the prince that she loves him. And this uh, aria is in Czech. Wonderful. And uh, my Czech is limited, but I do recall Dobreden is... uh, Oh, wow. Hello hello to our Czech listeners. Dobreden. Um, (laughs) Dobreden, jak se máš? I know a little bit of Czech. I've been taking lessons during the quarantine. (laughs) I did notice that. I did notice that. Okay, everybody. um, Song to the Moon uh, by Kinetic. Mm -hmm. Ely. Here we go.
in that video I don't know what to say or do after I hear that <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much all oh, the good vibes uh, are all that I need thank thanks yeah so that was taken at a live concert and uh, hence the applause at the also the beginning and the end so um, uh, so that was actually done on Feb in February 2020 so the timing of that couldn't have been yeah. better this was a concert a series of three concerts that I did actually uh, here in Israel with um, uh, two of my friends. One of them is uh, tenor Pavel Sulianziga, and uh, the other is a baritone, uh, Suchan Kim. So Pavel is from uh, from Russia, and uh, Suchan is from South Korea. And so we did um, uh, three concerts here in Israel. So this was uh, recorded in uh, one of those concerts. And to have been able to do those concerts right before COVID hit is really just a miracle of timing that, you know, we couldn't even have known ahead of time when we originally started planning the concerts. So it's really amazing yeah. how that turned out. So, yeah, I'm yeah. really glad well, that um, we have those clips as, as um, evidence that we did actually do something in 2020. Because well, <laughs> theaters it... uh, all over the world had to close down. Yeah. Anyway. Um. Well, yeah, I'm, I, and, and I'm, I'm happy for you that you're able to, 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 to have that, right? And of course, in, in retrospect uh, to it. Um, and, and talking about your, talking about the, 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 the art, the art of, of, of the opera and, and, and your experiences. Um, and I mentioned to you, you know, a lot of it feels to new to me and I have a deep amount of curiosity about, you know, certain aspects of it. So I wanted I wanted to know if you could talk a, a bit about your um, your your career, your training. You know, what does for for many of us? What does how how does a, a soprano train? Where do you where do you go? And then, but also, uh, and and related to the the pandemic, which is just for live performers and uh, the impact of that. I mean, one of the things I'm going to let you talk, but one of the things you had mentioned about even doing your auditions. I'm, I'm thinking high level auditions for an opera singer, for soprano, and, and you're doing it remotely. I just, the, the, the idea is fascinating. So, so tell us about you as, as, as an opera singer, what's going on, how you arrive where you are. Yeah, so um, uh, first of all, how much time do you have? <laughs> no, but seriously, um, uh, so, <laughs> so growing up, actually both in America and uh, also in Israel, so first of all, just for clarity's sake, I spent the vast majority of my childhood uh, in the United States, in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, so the land of powdered wigs and buckled shoes, yes. but I also lived in uh, Jerusalem uh, uh, here. So uh, in both places, I actually ended up doing uh, musicals in schools, you know, so in both countries, I was uh, the musical theater kid. And then I started taking voice lessons because uh, apparently I would just keep singing around the house and I didn't think anything of it. I didn't have any kind of, uh, you know, ambitions or anything at the time about it. So uh, at the time I was um, uh, 13 years old. 
um, uh, my mother said, well, you know, she sings around the house. Why not put her in voice lessons? And this wasn't with any sort of thought of uh, saying, oh, she'll have a career in musical theater. Or she'll have a career in opera. It was just more like an outlet of some kind of doing something that I was doing all over the house anyway, you know, like an after school activity. Yeah. And so I had my first voice lesson when I was 13. And I uh, remember singing my favorite things at that first um, uh, voice lesson and kind of cowering behind a music stand because I was very shy. And so that was how that began. And then uh, as uh, the more I, I took voice lessons and mo the more my voice developed, the more I started developing high notes and my voice started uh, evolving in a more operatic direction. And then uh, at the time, this was uh, when I was 15, you know, 15, 16, uh, my voice teacher then uh, asked me, uh, have you ever thought about becoming an opera singer? And uh, a little confessions that after he asked me that I kind of went, um, uh, went home and cried because at that time, I, the opera performances I had seen up until that point, which was not that many, but um, uh, they weren't especially well done so in my conception <laughs> that was like what opera was so the idea of kind of being asked would you like to be an opera singer was not the most appealing prospect at that time but <laughs> then what completely changed things yeah what completely changed things is that then when I was 16 uh, there's a opera program that was taking place here in uh, Israel and uh, actually, so practically in my own, one of my backyards, I should say, you know, the U.S. is my backyard and Israel is my backyard. So uh, practically in my uh, backyard, uh, a program called the International Vocal Arts Institute or IVAI for short. And uh, it was uh, run by uh, Joan Dorneman, the, uh, who was uh, one of the coaches at the Metropolitan Opera. So an incredibly high level program. And uh, the faculty that she brought there were some of the greatest singers and teachers in the world. And uh, also the students that were chosen uh, for it were phenomenal. And uh, I remember the first event that I went to there, I uh, went with my mother and uh, it was a masterclass with uh, Cheryl Mills, you know, the great baritone who'd sung with uh, you know, all the greatest singers and who'd had an incredible uh, opera career you know, it was one of the best uh, Rigolettos, you know, in Verdi's uh, opera Rigoletto, and, you know, thing, uh, Louisa Miller, another Verdi opera. I mean, his, um, I mean, the list of his illustrious list just goes on and on and on. So the first event we attended was a masterclass with him. So you can imagine how seeing a masterclass uh, given by him with also with incredible singers there would really kind of light a fire as far as opera would go. And then the more I attended uh, things like master classes and concerts and uh, opera productions there, the more I uh, really fell in love with it. And then the rest is history. And then the following year, when I was 17, something quite freakish happened in which uh, my parents uh, sent uh, tried to uh, contact um, uh, Joan Dorneman saying, uh, and this was really on a lark. This was with no expectation of anything happening. They just said, hi, we absolutely loved, you know, the uh, opera workshop. Um, uh, and in any case, I have a daughter who's very interested in pursuing opera. Do you happen to have any advice for, you know, a high schooler who's interested in opera? And, uh, you know, months and months and months passed and there was no reply. And again, there was no expectation of a reply even. Then we hear back 
um, uh, then there's a phone call and on the uh, caller ID, you see International Vocal Arts Institute. And we all look at each other like, <gasps> and uh, <laughs> and then she says, so uh, we say, well, we're actually going to be going up to New York in a short time anyway. And uh, and uh, she says, would you uh, like to meet me there? We went, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and then I sang for her. And granted, I was a 17-year-old singer. I was really, really, really young. But she she took me into the program uh, for the following year, which oh was incredible. Goodness. I know. <laughs> I still can't believe it. So uh, the thing about that program is it's a multi-tier program. So you had someone like me who was a high schooler, super, super young, totally green. And then you had people who were, you know, in their 30s already having opera careers and, you know, uh, people in doing their bachelor's degree, master's degree. So you had all different levels. And so there was really something for every level to learn there. And then the beauty was being able to learn from the older singers as well as uh, from the faculty. And so that experience was absolutely incredible. And I would say a pretty good start in the world of opera. <laughs> so, that's, yeah, that, pretty that decent. Is, <laughs> no, that's, that's incredible. Um, oh, gosh, I didn't even get to talking about the pandemic. <laughs> so anyway. No, the, no, um, no, there, there yeah. was more to it. But one, one of the things, let's we'll go to the pandemic next. Uh, but um, outside view, opera, young singer, talented pressure what's it like what's it like what's it like being that person on the stage the weights on you the performance all that like what's that like you know I have to tell you that one of the things I really had to learn because I do have sort of a perfectionistic event in my personality as well so first of all you're totally right that um, something like that can be compounded in a field like opera in which there's so many things you have to get just right. The way the voices plays with the musicality, with the languages, which you have to sound um, like a native speaker of you know, Italian and French and German. And we opera singers frequently you know, speak these languages as well. So you have to get that right. You have to get the acting right. And you have to put all of that together. And uh, it really is kind of being asked to pat your head and rub your belly at the same time or like yeah. walk and chew gum um, or kind of a more extreme version of that. So some of the things that I've uh, actually done for myself is uh, really look for examples within other sort of perfectionistic worlds of people who are really able to find healthy ways to uh, do that. And one of the articles that I uh, read that really kind of struck my soul in this respect was something that I read in uh, a magazine called Point Magazine. Uh, so this is actually a ballet magazine. Um, uh, and this was an article with uh, Abby Stafford, who is, the, uh, pr who is a principal dancer with the New York City Ballet. And she talked about her first experience dancing, I believe it was 48 Nutcrackers, but over 40 Nutcrackers in the holiday season, because that's uh, one of the most, if not the most intense uh, period for New York City Ballet as far as performances. Yeah. So yeah. she talked about, yeah, her experience doing that. And she said that she came to the uh, conclusion after that uh, first season that um, uh, as soon as, and uh, here's the thing that really hit my soul. She says, yeah. as soon as I was able to stop, as soon as I stopped trying to dance perfectly, I was able to start dancing well. I was like, whoa. Yeah. So really, 
And also, uh, too, when in my practice sessions, I'm always stressing to myself that my goal is progress because perfection is impossible. You can never be perfect. You can aim for higher levels in your singing, in your uh, musicality, in your languages, but you're never going to be perfect. Even the greatest singers in the world are not perfect. They're amazing, but they're not perfect. And one of the things I actually started doing was uh, listening to uh, live performances of, you know, Maria Callas and Joan Sutherland, not studio recordings in right. which you can, you know, fix a little thing. And in live performances, you know, they're like little mistakes and whatnot. And you go, oh, wait, it is actually okay to be yeah. human. <laughs> you know, it's like there's a little more breathing room. So, and frankly, you need that breathing room because again, perfection is impossible. And I think the second that you uh, try and strive for that is the second you uh, shoot yourself in the foot. So progress, progress, progress. Um, uh, and that's something that I stress both to myself and I would stress to anybody else as well. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate your comments there. And it's it just kind of, you know, again, like looking at it and seeing, you know, there's different art forms and there's different roles with whatever you're producing and there's different ways to hide, remove yourself, never be present, you know, when it comes to the art and you're you're the opposite. Your role is the opposite of that. You, yeah, we're very you, out in the open. You are pretty much out in the open. Okay, so um, pandemic stuff, The what I had mentioned. All right, so you're over there. You're in Tel Aviv. Um, it's pandemic. Uh, you're a soprano. Um, you're looking to work on different projects and auditions. Like, what? How do you, how do you pop on the how do you pop on the computer and audition yeah. for the for the part? Oh, yeah. So this is first of all, so this has been a very fascinating learning curve all throughout the pandemic, uh, you know, both for me and I know for the opera world at large. So first of all, just to set the stage a little bit, um, uh, opera is such an inherently interactive art form. I mean, you have probably the biggest um, uh, uh, gathering of people on stage uh, of any art form in that you have soloists and a chorus and uh, oftentimes uh, what are called super uh, supernumeraries. Uh, oh God, I can't talk right now, or supers. So, um, uh, you know, people who um, uh, kind of uh, fill in the stage, let's say holding a spear or whatnot, you know, aren't necessarily singing, um, uh, but their presence is very important. You have dancers. So you have all of these people who need to be together and you have the orchestra, you know, in the orchestra pit, all of these people who need to be together uh, in order for the art form to work. And, you know, then it's also backstage crew and then, of course, the audience. And uh, and then, of course, with COVID, none of those things were possible. And so uh, seasons, uh, opera seasons uh, all over the world had to be canceled uh, for that reason, for health precautions. So then, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So we had to move a lot of what we could do in uh, all of this uh, span of everything we couldn't do. We had to focus on what we could do and really maximize the Internet uh, for that or uh, socially distanced um, uh, environments. I know several opera companies are doing uh, drive through performances, which has been fantastic. I know English National Opera just did that with their production of La Boheme. And uh, but we've also been doing things like uh, live streaming concerts and live streaming masterclasses. So um, uh, again, this would all be done over Zoom and, and uh, we would all be uh, singing our part at home. And you see there's a piano in the background. So you'd be, uh, someone would be playing the piano 
uh, in the background, oh, I'd be singing next to my bookshelf or what have you for potentially one of the greatest um, uh, singers or teachers, you know, in the world for a masterclass. It's been uh, it's been really something. So we've all been uh, adjusting to these new uh, formats of uh, doing operas. And many people have been doing what uh, opera films. So people using green screen at home and uh, also Adobe Premiere Pro and being able to create really incredible productions using these, this technology and people recording their performances on their iPhones and then uploading that. And then uh, the products of that, uh, those recordings are able to be to become a really beautiful artistic product. Again, with equipment you have at home. And uh, in a way, if this pandemic had to happen, I mean, that's a really awful sentence. I don't think it had to, but in a more philosophical sense, if it had to happen, it's good that it happened now rather than 20, 30 years ago, because we have so much technology at our disposal that we're really able to harness to create such uh, incredible beauty in the sense of art and then uh, to... Um, uh, to really improve people's lives uh, all across the board uh, collectively. So we, th we really have been able to use all these different tools uh, at our disposal. Uh, disposal. Uh, goodness, I don't know what it is today. Disposal. And, uh, and create things that are absolutely uh, spectacular. And again, with equipment that we have at home. So there are many things that um, the pandemic limited as far as opera, but it also opened so many new doors that I know are going to continue even after the pandemic is over as far as the possibilities of our art form. And so that is really exciting. And I'm, uh, and I'm uh, really eager to see um, uh, what develops. And we're speaking with Kinneret uh, Ely here and uh, some great discussion regarding uh, technology and around um, the pandemic, you know, maybe the time of the pandemic to be able to communicate still um, and in your experiences of auditioning from afar. I'd even mentioned um, to you about a documentary that I'm working on. And what's interesting yeah. with the piece I didn't mention to you is that it's all on an iPhone. The entire documentary is to be shot, edited, uploaded, etc. on an iPhone. And this is the second one I've done of this in of this nature and having the tech to be able to pull off a five minute film, you know, on, on the phone is it's, it's, it's a nice time to be able to try art. That's like that. Right. <laughs> to oh, yes. have that capacity. Oh yes. I um, mean, that's the uh, technology. Oh, no. I mean, I was uh, just going to say that's the technology that we have now. I mean, people are creating, I mean, as you said, you know, people are creating films on their iPhones and uh, I just took a class uh, about a week and a half ago in which they were addressing just that very fact I mean, that's where technology is gone. And uh, as much as uh, as much as live performances are essential, and I know uh, uh, people the globe over are clamoring to be back in the same room again and to have an experience of catharsis and of experiencing the same art form altogether in the same room. I mean, as much as uh, the live aspect of it has really been uh, shown to us uh, throughout this whole pandemic, I will also say that it's uh, the pandemic has also revealed all of the, um, the all of the possibilities of the t technology that we have, such as being able to shoot uh, whole films on our iPhones, and uh, I think that uh, taking advantage of the technology will be essential uh, even after the pandemic.
even after we return to life performance. Yeah, those those that 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 process that process of the possibilities remain or whatever the possibilities uh, be. I have uh, uh, I have a question for you, and I gotta I, I gotta admit, I actually don't like the question, but I'm gonna try to tell you what I was trying to get at. So. In 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 in, ta- in thinking about opera and thinking about you know questions for you particular to your art, um, one of the questions I had posed or was thinking about was about whether opera is in a position to kind of tell modern stories. I don't even like my statement. I don't like the question because I think I think the the, the quick answer is like any art form in opera. I mean these these are universals. This is love. This is killing. This is murder. This is death. This is treachery. These are all these heavy type of things. And I, I don't, I don't expect right now to say that, you know, opera, you know, post pandemic, uh, you know, it, it can't do all that. I think those stories are the stories that they are, but, but opera's tied historically to this. How do I get to see an opera? Where is an opera? How long it is? What are they saying? It's like a, an accessibility uh, question. So it's 2021 pandemic. You're a soprano singer. What's the opera do for us right now and into the future? Yes. So um, uh, first of all, yes, 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 yes. There absolutely is room for opera to tell modern stories. And this is really uh, plugging back into uh, what I said earlier about the power and the vulnerability of the unamplified human voice being uh, the superpower here. And as far as uh, a modern opera, and I'll say a 21st uh, century opera, a perfect example of that would be uh, Jake Heggie's uh, Dead Man Walking. So that's the opera that uh, Jake Heggie composed based on uh, the move, uh, based on the movie by uh, Susan Saran- uh, with Susan Sarandon and uh, Sean Penn, and uh, in co- close collaboration with uh, Sister Helen Prejean. And uh, and so we're talking about the death penalty, which is a very real topic that is affecting us in day to day life. You know, we're not talking about, you know, uh, courtesans in the 19th <laughs> century, you know, Paris, which even though there are universal themes right. in that, it's understandable that a topic like that um, uh, would have a cert- wouldn't necessarily be the most relevant thing to us now in 2021 experiencing the modern day pandemic. And I get that. And I say that as somebody who loves uh, Verdi's La Traviata. That's one of my favorite operas. And that's the one I was referring to when talking about the courtesans. But in any case, uh, about Dead Man Walking, that is about a topic that is affecting us on a day-to-day basis. When we go to the voting polls, maybe people um, uh, uh, know others who've been touched personally uh, by it. And uh, so you're experiencing this issue through the lens of uh, expression through the human voice. And so that gives a different uh, perspective to it. And it's one that's absolutely uh, devastating in the best sense, uh, in the way that uh, art uh, has the capacity to be Uh, absolutely uh, devastating. And so that really speaks to uh, its place in the modern day world. And even though I'm using Dead Man Walking as a, as a clear example of that, that's true of uh, opera all across uh, the board right now, contemporary opera. So um, uh, seeing the different stories that emerge during this period and what is going to be set, how it's going to be set, what topics are going to be chosen, that's going to be a very uh, interesting thing to see. We're still in the early part of the century, so it'll be very fascinating to see uh, what emerges uh, emerges, and then uh, which of those operas kind of uh, stand the test of time and uh, whatnot, because that's the other thing. There were actually a lot more operas composed in, let's say, the 19th century and the 20th century and then also the 18th century. And a lot of those we don't necessarily know about because for whatever reason, 
uh, likely historical reasons, they didn't uh, necessarily last. And so the ones that are the, uh, the most frequently performed ones uh, are the ones we most um, uh, know about, but there are probably many other stories, really uh, beautiful stories that have sort of collected dust over the years for whatever reason that need to be told. And uh, there was actually, um, there were actually initiatives on that, on, on that front about uh, uh, degenerate uh, artists, um, uh, you know, so composers of uh, the 1930s and also I believe early 1940s as well uh, during the period of the Third uh, Reich. And a lot of these uh, composers composed a really incredible music, but those uh, voices were put out for, you know, obvious reasons and it's such a tragedy. So there are initiatives to bring those works back and to bring um and to bring new life to those uh modern uh to what are essentially you know modern stories and so uh the more that we can give uh you know new life to those new life in the sense of performing them um uh, the the more that um opera will continue to uh, evolve and be the incredibly um uh, flexible art form that it is because it is flexible it's over 400 years old it has lasted outlasted two world wars you know the the great depression it's uh, outlasting covid it's uh, it outlasted so many uh, disasters that i think that um any time that i heard and even before the pandemic that oh opera is a dying art form oh it's collecting dust and it's all mothballs i say wait no it's not it's so relevant because um, and it's so, so powerful and it's outlasted so many world calamities in a way that they didn't last. I mean, those calamities didn't last. So uh, that speaks to the uh, to the staying power of the art form and also to its ability to fit into the modern world. Yeah, I appreciate your comments there. And I didn't want it to be a hackneyed type of question, you know, since oh, what's it say for us now? I just what I found what I found is just my personal impression. Um, is that, you know, you hear these kind of large statements around like video versus audio and movies versus TV and, you know, classical forms of art. And, you know, I think it's cute to always make like dire predictions about the death of, you know, movies, right? The death of the movie. Theater. <laughs> yeah. And all I see is kind of strange adaptations. And I'll give you an example, right? So like there's this TV show that was just put out. It's called uh, Calls. It's on Apple TV and I watched it. And what I found so fascinating in the pandemic and what art will come out now, why it's so fascinating, this is basically using a TV medium to squish in audio content and audio stereo uh, uh, storytelling. There's no people. There's no actors. There's a voice file and you see movement of the voice file you hear voices in an interwoven story is being told you're watching the thing on a tv and it's a radio program it's not a it's not oh, really wow. i mean it's not really you know what i mean it's not really a tv program so i guess my main point is you start to see this conflation of video is it audio or you see with opera or classical forms and how they're presented um I think the answer to this question all the time is they're going to be around. They've been around oh, yeah. and it'll look different as we go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, that's, I mean, absolutely. And that's uh, exactly how opera has evolved. I mean, uh, at the beginning, it was, you know, in the style of um, uh, composers like uh, Monteverdi, who uh, composed, you know, operas such as uh, L'Incoronazione di Popea, the Coronation of Popea. 
and uh, you know, and also uh, Orfeo. So that was uh, one of the many versions of the Orpheus uh, story, you know, of Orpheus and the Underworld. Uh, that were uh, yeah. set to opera, one of them's by Monteverdi. So if, uh, in any case, uh, what I'm saying is that if the, op- the art form of opera did not evolve, we would still be performing music like that. And everything you'd be hearing in an opera house would be in the Baroque style. But of course, that's not the case. Um, you know, we have evolved through, you know, uh, Mozart, uh, Handel, you know, Mozart, and, uh, you know, Beethoven, uh, we have the Bel Canto operas, Rossini, Donizetti. And, and I mean, I'll, I'm not going to rehash all 400 years here, <laughs> but, in any case, but in any case, it has definitely gone through an evolution and, uh, and it will continue to do so. And that's the beauty of it. I mean, I, uh, I remember in one of my music history classes, um, uh, people uh, talking about, oh, uh, Deb about how WC was going to be the death of the art form of opera. Clearly that didn't happen. So, and he ended up composing uh, one of the greatest uh, operas in the repertoire uh, called uh, Peleas et Melisande. So it's a uh, Peleas and uh, Melisande. So, and then the art form evolved uh, further from that point. So it's always going to evolve. And that's the beauty of a living, breathing art form. It's going to evolve and it's going to evolve with the times. And so that is what's really exciting. And the con- the thing that ties all of those uh, periods, those time periods of uh, opera together and those styles is, and I, uh, I, I know I keep coming back to this, but it's such a key point for me, the unamplified human voice. That's always going to be what ties all of those uh, periods together and what's going to keep an art, what's going to keep opera opera, at least in my view. And I know that there will be people who will debate me even on that, and that's totally fine. But for me, that's really the key uh, element as far as the evolution of this art form and uh, kind of keeping it within the um, uh, uh, within the boundaries. I hate that word, but I'll use it anyway, within yeah. the boundaries of opera. Well, but what about, uh, or so, so in, in appreciate your comments, connect that to connect that to the big question about what is art? You're talking about a living form of art. So the question is, what is art? Yes, and that's an that's a really, really huge question. I love it. So I think that art is all of these uh, parts in our lives that we can't clearly compartmentalize and that we can't uh, simply express just in our day-to-day lives, in a conversation, uh, or you know, in a class. It has to be sung. It has to be painted. It has to be danced. It has to be composed into a symphony. It can't simply be spoken. And, uh, and so art is really kind of a distillation of those parts of our lives. And, uh, and it being put into something really beautiful. I mean, for me, uh, that uh, beauty component is uh, really important because that's going to be the thing that makes it possible for people to uh, talk about difficult topics. You know, art really distills difficult topics into uh, something that's manageable, something that you could attend uh, an opera or a ballet or what have you for three hours and, uh, and have a full emotional experience going to it. It's that kind of really powerful uh, distillation and economy of a certain topic. And uh, then art is the expression of that. And uh, about how uh, art can really sort of beautify a really horrific topic. Uh, one of my favorite operas is um, uh, The Dialogues of the Carmelites by uh, Francis Poulenc. And uh, it's 
it's an absolutely phenomenal and also devastating opera that is about an order of uh, Carmelite nuns who were guillotined uh, during the French Revolution. I mean, they were uh, martyred. So this is their story. And as you can imagine, it, it really is a horrific story. But the beauty that Poulenc is able to give to it in depicting this sisterhood of nuns who pulls together during such a horrific time is really what makes this topic uh, bearable, I think. So, and uh, it, and even though that's one of the most uh, powerful examples of this concept that I can think of, I think this is a concept all across the board. I mean, if you're talking about the topic of death in opera, you know, a certain character uh, dying by the end of it. Beauty is what helps make this, is what helps uh, make it possible to experience these things and what helps make it bearable because I think otherwise people uh, you know we would be going our day-to-day -day lives without talking about those topics and instead uh, something like an opera or a symphony or a play is saying here's the topic we're uh, giving it in a way that's more palatable if you will that's uh, beautiful now let's talk about it it's a safe space of sorts that opens the floor to talking you, about what would otherwise do you, do you do you create art to create beauty? I mean, is that what compels you? Is that you go down like you you don't have to perform on stage, but you are. And when you are, are, are you are you tr trying to are you trying to create that beauty, that sublime, that that piece of art that makes it feel different? Uh, I would say yes, absolutely, and even more than the beauty. And I would say, in addition to that, the vulnerability, you know, the honesty, the empathy. And I think that is some, uh, I don't know a single person who says, oh, uh, I have too much empathy in my life, enough. You know, we all want more empathy and uh, being able to create a space in which that's able to happen is something that's really, uh, that's uh, really critical and a superpower of, uh, of the arts. One of the most uh, special moments in any given time that I'm performing is that moment in which I feel a communion or a communication of some sort with the audience in which we know we are experiencing something uh, with each other and not necessarily in the form of applause. These often happens, uh, this often happens in silences, you know, let's say in the silences in the music when you can feel that like, <gasps> you know, like that pin drop moment. And, uh, and you know that you're sort of in, in uh, communication with the audience at that moment. And that is the form of vulnerability um, uh, that I'm talking about that is so palpable in a performance. And, uh, and that is so meaningful. That's, that, that's a profound thought. And I, I think it's interesting because I didn't expect you to, you to say that, right? I mean, because we always want to have it. The vulnerability is, is, is the quality that is the human quality, but it's not the one to be like, Hey, we go into a situation like I work as a union rep and like I go into a situation and say, hey, I feel really vulnerable. They're like, we don't need you to feel vulnerable right now. I mean, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, there are spaces in which um, you in which uh, that's not necessarily, let's say, the desirable quote unquote. That's in very strict quotation marks. A thing, but the arts give you permit yeah. or, you know, they give people permission to do that. And that's so important. And, uh, and it really opens the floor for discussion with, uh, I mean, if you're going to a performance, you might be in an auditorium that seats 4,000 people and you're guaranteed to have all people with all kinds of different viewpoints and backgrounds. Uh, I mean, the likelihood of that being the case is very strong if you're attending a, a performance of any given kind. And, uh, and yet all of these very different people 
are experiencing the same thing together and that same sense of empathy. And that is such a powerful thing and a very, such an important function of art in society. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to do something a little bit uh, out of order. Got a couple questions for you, Kanera. Um, but I wanted, mm-hmm. uh, because the song was so special to me and, and, and how I ended up um, connecting uh, to, to you and for the listeners, um, I just encountered Kanera. Uh, a version of a song called uh, Dodie Lee, which I've been working on a video project and unfamiliar with the song. Um, and, and it was so beautiful and it, it made me oh, like, it, it just moved me in, in, you know, to, 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 to tears and just beautiful. Now, what is this? A, this is a, a, a traditional, a traditional Jewish song, uh, Dodie Lee, a love song. Um, I wanted to play it, but another setup here. What What is Dodie Lee? Absolutely. And by the way, I'll actually kind of set up a, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, that uh, this song is called uh, Dodie Lee. So the text is taken from uh, the Old Testament, from uh, the Song of Songs. And, uh, you know, the text is uh, saying, you know, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And this text is especially a poetic and uh, this uh, arrangement of it is by uh, a composer named uh, Menachem Wiesenberg, and he composed these. Uh, he composed uh, arrangements of uh, of uh, Israeli songs for a really great Israeli singer who uh, passed away about a couple of years ago. Her name is uh, Mira Zakai, and not only was she one of the greatest singers uh, here in Israel, but uh, and she sung with some of the greatest conductors in the world, like Sir uh, Georg Scholte, and I mean, really phenomenal career and she was also one of my um, uh, mentors and so I'm singing one of those arrangements that was originally composed uh, for her and uh, did it with her blessing Wow! so um, I know <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> so there's one thing and then I know and uh, then the other thing is that this is a song uh, along with other Israeli songs that I really love to program when I give recitals and in recitals as opposed to opera you can program all kinds of different songs and kind of arrange them as a menu of sorts, you know, for your audience. And that is a, an environment in which an artist is able to express a lot more individuality. Because if you're performing in a full-length opera like, you know, La Traviata, La Boheme, Dialogues of the Carmelites, you're singing the pieces from that opera, you know, the arias from, you know, La Traviata. Or like if you were performing in musical theater, you're not going to be singing, uh, you know, Phantom of the Opera. You know, you're singing only right. the pieces of My Fair Lady. So, um, so with the art song recital, as opposed to an opera production, you can com- uh, put together pieces that run just about the full gamut. So uh, an artist has a lot more individuality in this respect, in this particular uh, medium. And so in uh, these, I always love to uh, program a few Israeli songs. And oftentimes uh, the audience falls uh, in love with them, even without knowing uh, a single word in Hebrew. Because, again, the beauty of the music, the beauty of uh, a human, an unamplified human voice singing them is uh, really something special. So Dodidi has been a very good friend to me in recitals. Yeah, there's, uh, and, and, and thank you for going into it. Just uh, just reminded me, the, 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 the how it, the how it how it sounds right with without the language i mean you're in a i find i, I just an idea i find you're in such an interesting position as far as the level of the language acquisition that you gain in order to be able to sing and sound like somebody who's from there 
at the same time where you're communicating and saying, well, I know nobody's saying, knowing exactly the what, the what I'm saying a lot of time as it's going on. It's a very curious way for you to have to communicate in, in that, in that realm. Oh, that said though, you often do have native speakers of those uh, operas in the audience. So watch out. Well, <laughs> I mean, first of all, there's yeah. the quality component in that you do want to deliver these great works you know, to the best of uh, to the best that they can possibly be, you know, so if you're performing something like Shakespeare's, uh, you know, Hamlet, you don't, uh, you want to make sure that the English, you know, the Shakespearean English is as crisp and uh, beautiful as possible to convey the play in, uh, in all of its power. And so in that respect, opera is no different. You want to convey, you know, Italian opera in uh, all of its power, uh, French opera, or, you know, um, uh, songs that are in Hebrew, you know, Israeli songs. So, uh, or, you know, Czech in the case of uh, Rusalka, you know, you really want to deliver that to the best of uh, your ability. And so in this respect, it's really no difference than a Shakespearean actor, or I think of, let's say, Jane du uh, Jane Dame Judi Dench, you know, perform uh, performing a Shakespeare play. So we're kind of, I guess, Shakespearean actors of opera <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's where we got to um okay so we're gonna cut to the track right now uh dodi lee uh with canara ely and after that canara i'm gonna ask you why why there is something rather than nothing so let's listen to the song first though I'm left in the similar circumstance to the last song we played, <laughs> the last per performance, the last performance. Um, very beautiful. Um, Thank you so much. Very beautiful song. Um, I there's there's something I want to tell you uh, that I that, that that I picked out and that I connected for myself one time when I was lucky enough to see Itzhak Perlman in Portland for the Oregon Symphony. In his violin, 
in this song, somewhere is longing. It's just, mm. there's longing in there. And I don't know how to describe it any other way, but I can just always hear it. I can hear it in there. It's somewhere in there. Uh, so it's exactly. beautiful. That's, that's the only word I got right now. It's beautiful. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, and uh, I'm also uh, joining in the Itzhak Perlman love. I mean, he's uh, just, there are no words. He's so incredible. He picked up the violin. I never, look, so here's the thing. Uh, I started going to the symp Oregon Symphony um, because it was actually affordable through discounts um, a few years back. And of course, last year was last year, uh, a pandemic. But when Nietzschek came out, he had the violin and he had it and it was set up and he's slow getting around because of his ability to move right now. And mm -hmm. he, he played the instrument and what he was doing and the world was created in an instant. There was a complete other world, a complete other like change in place in time and geography. And then I knew, then I knew I'm like, that's okay. That's Perlman. <laughs> That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it's him harnessing uh, those things that you can't simply express in words or in your day to day life. I mean, that's his superpower, <laughs> you know? Yeah. All right. All right. Um, the big the big the big question. I'm really interested in your thoughts. Uh, why is there something rather than nothing? Because, okay, because I think that something can also be, uh, can always be created out of um, uh, something that doesn't look like it's much or unassuming looking. And uh, a really incredible art exhibit that I saw to that point was, it was about five years ago, if I remember the exact uh, timing correctly. This was at the Museum of Modern Art in uh, New York, and it was of uh, Matisse's cutouts. And so there were pieces of, uh, of colored paper you know, which were really sort of the leftover scraps, you know, that that an artist would have in their studio. And Matisse arranged them in the most beautiful ways and just created wonder. I mean, wonder to be um, uh, to be displayed at, you know, MoMA and other galleries all over the world. And it was made out of things that people that uh, some many people would have dismissed as um, uh, scraps that a five year old would have, you know, cutting things out of construction paper. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say Matisse used construction paper, but it is to say he used very unassuming materials and he used them to create wonders. Right. And actually, artists, a lot of the time, um, uh, use resources that on the surface wouldn't necessarily look like they're much. Let's say a rehearsal studio, which uh, looking from the outside, it's not the most remarkable space. It could be a black box, you know, theater. Um, it's uh, quite simply a, a, a more or less empty room, a blank canvas. And yet wonders are able to be created in there. You know, these artistic wonders are able to be created in there. And that's true of, of uh, rehearsal rooms. It's true of art studios. So uh, in that sense, uh, art is really wonderful in the sense that you can create uh, something uh, out of, I won't say nothing, I will say almost nothing. Because yeah. you always need a little bit of something. But for the most part, it's, uh, it's uh, the creativity of people that helps make these into the most incredible somethings. Yeah. Yeah, some some things. That's a, I mean, at, at a some things <laughs> plural. Well, and the thing is too with vocabulary and like in philosophy, a lot of time it comes to like things, right? Like, I mean, we can elevate our vocabulary. It's like, is this a thing? Is this a different thing than? <laughs> thing? Like, you know, 
and then you start laughing and then like, okay, that's, it's kind of all, you know, um, well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much uh, for that. Um, one of the things I want to do, um, uh, and, and, and again, as you know, I, I feel particularly blessed by having you on this show, but one of the things uh, that I like to do is connect you to the listeners in, in kind of like your art and what you do and how that happens. So, so where do folks go uh, as they uh, want to learn about more about Kimirit uh, Ely? What, what, where do they go? Yeah, so you can go to my website, uh, canaritely.com, and there you'll find my social media handles as well. Uh, uh, as well. So you'll find my Instagram and my uh, YouTube, my Facebook, my Twitter. I use all of it. I love social media. So please connect with me there. I would love to see you. So yeah, canaritely.com. Uh, and I'm going to have you spell it just to... Uh... Oh, of course. Yes. Excuse me. <laughs> so that is uh, K-I-N-N-E-R-E-T-E-L-Y. All right. That's so wonderful. I want folks to be able to um, to hear your stuff like the happenstance uh, that, that, that I encountered you and uh, able to talk to you um, in, in, in it just it's it's been a, it's been a great pleasure. I've been. Um, I, I've loved hearing your answers uh, to these questions. And I mentioned to a lot of guests, I like my own personal thought to be propelled. Like, you know, so there's always a self-serving part of this show um, just in the sense That's that wonderful. I, yeah, that I want to learn more and I want to be able to understand, you know, the tremendous art that I, that I've encountered um, from, from the artists themselves. So um, yeah, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, it's been a real great, great pleasure. Um, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> oh, the feeling is mutual. Thank you so much again for having me. This has been wonderful and getting to talk about art. We don't typically get to speak about art quite at this level. So, uh, um, uh, and certainly not for an extended time like this. So this has been wonderful and such a blessing. Thanks so much again for having me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing it and I'm sure we're going to talk again. Thank you. So I would much. love that. Thank you so much. This is something rather than nothing. 